Chapter One of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter One The Bread of Affliction. A dead and gone wag called the street Fashion Street, and most people who live in it do not even see the joke. If it could exchange names with Rotten Row, both places would be more appropriately designated. It is a dull, squalid, narrow thoroughfare in the east end of London, connecting Spitalfields with Whitechapel, and branching off in blind alleys. In the days when little Esther Ansell trudged its unclean pavements, its extremities were within earshot of the blasphemies of some of the vilest quarters and filthiest rookeries in the capital of the civilized world. Some of these clotted spider-webs have since been swept away by the basm of the social reformer, and the spiders have scurried off into darker crannies. There were the conventional touches about the London street picture as Esther Ansell sped through the freezing mist of the December morning, with a pitcher in her hand, looking in her oriental colouring like a miniature Rebecca going to the well, a female street-singer with a trail of infants of dubious maternity troubled the air with a piercing melody, a pair of slatterns with arms akimbo reviled each other's relatives. A drunkard lurched along, babbling amiably. An organ-grinder, blue-nosed as his monkey, set some ragged children jigging under the watery rays of a street-lamp. Esther drew her little plaid shawl tightly around her, and ran on without heeding these familiar details, her chilled feet absorbing the damp of the murky pavement through the worn soles of her cumbrous boots. They were masculine boots, kicked off by some intoxicated tramp, and picked up by Esther's father. Moses Ansell had a habit of lighting on windfalls, due perhaps to his meek manner of walking, with bent head, as though literally bowed beneath the yoke of the captivity. Providence rewarded him for his humility by occasional treasure-trove. Esther had received a pair of new boots from her school a week before, and the substitution of the tramp's footgear for her own resulted in a net profit of half a crown, and kept Esther's little brothers and sisters in bread for a week. At school, under her teacher's eye, Esther was very unobtrusive about the feet for the next fortnight, but as the fear of being found out died away, her sensitive conscience condoned the deception, in view of the stomatic gain. They gave away bread and milk at the school, too, but Esther and her brothers and sisters never took either, for fear of being thought in want of them. The superiority of a classmate is hard to bear, and a high-spirited child will not easily acknowledge starvation in presence of a room full of purse-proud urchins some of them able to spend a farthing a day on pure luxuries. Moses Ansell would have been grieved had he known his children were refusing the bread he could not give them. 
trade was slack in the sweating dens, and Moses, who had always lived from hand to mouth, had latterly held less than ever between the one and the other. He had applied to help to the Jewish Board of Guardians, but red tape rarely unwinds as quickly as hunger coils itself. Moreover, Moses was an old offender in poverty at the Court of Charity. But there was one species of arms which Moses could not be denied, and the existence of which Esther could not conceal from him as she concealed that of the breakfasts at the school. For it was known to all men that soup and bread were to be had for the asking thrice a week at the institution in Fashion Street and in the Ansell household the opening of the soup-kitchen was looked forward as to the dawn of a golden age, when it would be impossible to pass more than one day without bread. The vaguely remembered smell of the soup threw a poetic fragrance over the coming winter. Every year since Esther's mother had died the child had been sent to fetch home the provender, for Moses who was the only other available member of the family, was always busy praying when he had nothing better to do. And so to-night Esther fared to the kitchen with her red pitcher, passing in her childish eagerness numerous women shuffling along on the same errand, and bearing uncouth tin cans supplied by the institution. An individualistic instinct of cleanliness made Esther prefer the family pitcher. Today this liberty of choice has been taken away, and the regulation can, numbered and stamped, serves as a soup ticket. There was quite a crowd of applicants outside the stable-like doors of the kitchen when Esther arrived. A few with well-lined stomachs, perhaps, but the majority famished and shivering. The feminine element swamped the rest, but there were about a dozen men and a few children among the group, most of the men scarce taller than the children. Strange, stunted, swarthy, hairy creatures, with muddy complexions, illuminated by black, twinkling eyes. A few were of imposing stature, wearing coarse, dirty felt hats, or peaked caps on their heads, and shaggy beards and faded scarfs around their throats. Here and there, too, was a woman of comely face and figure, but for the most part it was a collection of crones, prematurely aged, with weird, wan, old-world features, slipshod and draggle-tailed, their heads bare or covered with dingy shawls in lieu of bonnets, red shawls, grey shawls, brickish shawls, mud-coloured shawls. There was an indefinable touch of romance and pathos about the tawdriness and witch-like ugliness, and an underlying identity about the crowd of Polish, Russian, German, Dutch Jewesses, noisily apathetic and pressing forward. Some of them had infants at their bare breasts, who drowsed quietly with intervals of ululation. Those devoid of shawls had nothing around their neck to protect them from the cold. The dusky throats were exposed, and sometimes even the first hooks and eyes of the bodice 
were unnecessarily undone. The majority wore cheap earrings and black wigs with preternaturally polished hair. Where there was no wig, the hair was tousled. At half-past five the stable doors were thrown open, and the crowd pressed through a long, narrow, whitewashed stone corridor into a basement-like compartment with a whitewashed ceiling traversed by wooden beams. Within this compartment, and leaving but a narrow circumscribing border, was a sort of cattle-pen, into which the paupers crushed, awaiting amid discomfort and universal jabber the divine moment. The single jet of gaslight depending from the ceiling flared upon their strange simian faces, and touched them into a grotesque picturesqueness that would have delighted Doré. They felt hungry, these picturesque people. Their near and dear ones were hungering at home, voluptuously savouring in imagination the operation of the soup. They forgot its operation as a dole in aid of wages, were unconscious of the grave economical possibilities of pauperization and the rest, and quite willing to swallow their independence with the soup. Even Esther, who had read much and was sensitive, accepted unquestioningly the theory of the universe that was held by most people about her, that human beings were distinguished from animals in having to toil terribly for a meagre crust, but their lot was lightened by the existence of a small and semi-divine class called Takifim, or rich people, who gave away what they didn't want. How these rich people came to be, Esther did not inquire. They were as much a part of the constitution of things as clouds and horses. The semi-celestial variety was rarely to be met with. It lived far away from the ghetto, and a small family of it was said to occupy a whole house. Representatives of it, clad in rustling silks or impressive broadcloth, and radiating an indefinable aroma of superhumanity, sometimes came to the school, preceded by the beaming headmistress. And then all the little girls rose and curtsied, and the best of them, passing as average members of the class, astonished the semi-divine persons by their intimate acquaintance with the topography of the Pyrenees, and the disagreements of Saul and David the intercourse of the two species ending in effusive smiles and general satisfaction. But the dullest of the girls was alive to the comedy, and had a good-humoured contempt for the unworldliness of the semi-divine persons who spoke to them as if they were not going to recommence squabbling and pulling one another's hair, and copying one another's sums, and stealing one another's needles the moment the semi-celestial backs were turned. To-night semi-divine persons were to be seen in a galaxy of splendour, for in the reserved standing-places behind the white deal counter was gathered a group of philanthropists. The room was an odd-shaped polygon, partly lined with eight boilers, whose great wooden lids were raised by pulleys and balanced by red-painted iron balls. 
In the corner stood the cooking engine. Cooks in white caps and blouses stirred the steaming soup with long wooden paddles. A tradesman besought the attention of the Jewish reporters to the improved boiler he had manufactured, and the superintendent adjured the newspaper men not to omit his name, while amid the soberly clad clergymen flitted, like gorgeous hummingbirds through a flock of crows, the marriageable daughters of an East End minister. When a sufficient number of semi-divinities was gathered together, the President addressed the meeting at considerable length, striving to impress upon the clergymen and other philanthropists present that charity was a virtue, and appealing to the Bible, the Koran, and even the Vedas for confirming of his proposition. Early in his speech the sliding door that separated the cattle-pen from the kitchen proper had to be closed, because the jostling crowd jabbered so much, and inconsiderate infants squalled, and there did not seem to be any general desire to hear the President's ethical views. They were a low material lot, who thought only of their bellies, and did but chatter the louder when the speech was shut out. They had overflowed their barriers by this time, and were surging cruelly to and fro, and Esther had to keep her elbows close to her sides, lest her arms should be dislocated. Outside the stable doors a shifting array of boys and girls hovered hungrily and curiously. When the President had finished, the rabbinate was invited to address the philanthropists, which it did at not less length, eloquently seconding the proposition that charity was a virtue. Then the door was slid back, and the first two paupers were admitted, the rest of the crowd being courageously kept at bay by the superintendent. The head cook filled a couple of plates with soup, dipping a great pewter pot into the cauldron. The rabbinate then lifted its eyes heavenwards and said the grace. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, according to whose word all things exist. It then tasted a spoonful of the soup, as did also the President and several of the visitors, the passage of the fluid along the palate invariably evoking approving ecstatic smiles. And indeed there was more body in it this opening night than there would be later, when, in due course, the bulk of the meat would take its legitimate place among the pickings of office. The sight of the delighted deglutition of the semi-divine persons made Esther's mouth water as she struggled for breathing space on the outskirts of paradise. The impatience which fretted her was almost delayed by visions of stout-hearted Solomon and gentle Rachel and whimpering little Sarah and Ikey, all gulping down the delicious draught. Even the more stoical father and grandmother were a little in her thoughts. The Ansells had eaten nothing but a slice of dry bread each in the morning. Here before her, in the land of Goshen, flowing with soup, was piled up a heap of halves of loaves, while endless other loaves were ranged along the shelves as for a giant's table. 
Esther looked ravenously at the four-square tower built of edible bricks, shivering as the biting air sought out her back through a sudden interstice in the heaving mass. The draught reminded her more keenly of her little ones huddled together in the fireless garret at home. Oh, what a happy night was in store! She must not let them devour the two loaves to-night. That would be criminal extravagance. No, one would suffer for the banquet, the other must be carefully put by. To-morrow is also a day, as the old grandmother used to say in her quaint jargon. But the banquet was not to be spread as fast as Esther's fancy could fly. The doors must be shut again. Other semi-divine and wholly divine persons, in white ties, must move and second, with eloquence and length, votes of thanks to the President, the Rabbinate, and all other available recipients. A French visitor must express his admiration of English charity. But at last the turn of the gnawing stomachs came. The motley crowd, still babbling, made a slow forward movement, squeezing painfully through the narrow aperture, and shivering a plate-glass window-pane at the side of the cattle-pen in the crush. The semi-divine persons rubbed their hands and smiled genially. Ingenious paupers tried to dodge round the cauldrons by the semi-divine entrance. The tropical humming-birds fluttered among the crows. There was a splashing of ladles, and a gurgling of cascades of soup into the cans, and a hubbub of voices. A toothless, white-haired, blear-eyed hag lamented in excellent English that soup was refused her, owing to her case not having been investigated, and her tears moistened the one loaf she received. In a like hard case a Russian threw himself on the stones and howled. But at last Esther was running through the mist, warmed by the pitcher which she hugged to her bosom, and suppressing the blind impulse to pinch the pair of loaves tied up in her pinafore. She almost flew up the dark flight of stairs to the attic in Royal Street. Little Sarah was sobbing querulously. Esther, conscious of being an angel of deliverance, tried to take the last two steps at once, tripped, and tumbled ignominiously against the garret door, which flew back and let her fall into the room with a crash. The pitcher shivered into fragments under her aching little bosom. The odorous soup spread itself in an irregular pool over the boards, and flowed under the two beds, and dripped down the crevices into the room beneath. Esther burst into tears. Her frock was wet and greased. Her hands were cut and bleeding. Little Sarah checked her sobs at the disaster. Moses Ansell was not yet returned from evening service, but the withered old grandmother, whose wizened face loomed through the gloom of the cold, unlit garret, sat up on the bed and cursed her angrily for a schlemiel. A sense of injustice made Esther cry more bitterly. She had never broken anything for years past. Ikey, 
an eerie-looking tot of four and a half years, tottered towards her, all the Ansells had learned to see in the dark, and nestling his curly head against her wet bodice, murmured, "'Never mind, Esty. I like to sleep in my new bed.' The consolation of sleeping in that imaginary new bed, to the possession of which Ikey was always looking forward, was apparently adequate, for Esther got up from the floor and untied the loaves from her pinafore. A reckless spirit of defiance possessed her, as of a gambler who throws good money after bad. They should have a mad revelry to-night. The two loaves should be eaten at once. One, minus a hunk for their father's supper, would hardly satisfy six voracious appetites. Solomon and Rachel, irrepressibly excited by the sight of the bread, rushed at it greedily, snatched a loaf from Esther's hand, and tore off a crust each with their fingers. "'Shagets!' cried the old grandmother. "'Washing and moitzy!' benediction. Solomon was used to being called a heathen by the booby. He put on his cap and went grudgingly to the bucket of water that stood in a corner of the room, and tipped a drop over his fingers. It is to be feared that neither the quantity of water nor the area of hand covered reached even the minimum enjoined by rabbinical law. He murmured something intended for Hebrew during the operation, and was beginning to mutter the devout little sentence which precedes the eating of bread, when Rachel, who as a female was less driven to the lavatory ceremony, and had thus got ahead of him, paused in her ravenous mastication and made a wry face. Solomon took a huge bite at his crust. Then he uttered an inarticulate puh and spat out his mouthful. There was no salt in the bread. End of chapter 1